Okay, so welcome back, everybody, for the new episode of the Lacrosse Thinkers podcast.、Uh, I was mentioned to some of the listeners that actually every time I sit there, they kind of see me, not see the guest. So I we just simply oh, switch. Oh, all right. Now everybody、sense. can see your gestures and everything because、uh, yeah, basically、okay. what I do is just sitting there and doing nothing and pretend I'm listening. Right. right. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So today we have Dr. Ryan McKelly, the second time on our、uh, podcast from、uh, the Department of Psychology, and today's topic is actually masculinity, which is something we talk about right after. Uh, the last podcast, and I say, okay, I'm definitely interested in doing this. Yeah, yeah. So yeah,、uh, thanks for、sure. joining us again. Oh, my pleasure. I had, I had a blast the first time, so I'm <laughs> glad to be back. Cool.、Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit why do you want to study this, or why I, you become interested in this? Well, that's a long, possibly a long answer. I don't know.、Yeah. Um, I certainly, I, I should back up. I mean, psychology wasn't even; it was like a second career for me. I went into management, tech consulting, and stuff after undergrad. I、yeah, think but I, what about masculinity? Well, that's what I, that's what I get to. So、oh. when I went to graduate school, I wasn't thinking about masculinity.、Um, I was thinking I'll get this doctorate in counseling, I'll get licensed, and I'll go back out and do executive coaching, or I'll go out and you know work in organizations with CEOs and that. So I, I was going to go from consulting back into consulting with a degree.、Um, but something interesting happened. So my dissertation idea. So when I was in management consulting, I used to hear male executives or partners at the firm talk about like, "Oh, I'm working on that with my coach." Right. So th- this language of coaching was kind of already there in that in that field of of consulting. I don't remember ever hearing a female colleague say, "You know, I'm working on it with my coach,"、uh, or you know, maybe talking about anger management. I might hear them say, "Oh, yeah, I'm you know, I'm working on that with my therapist," but I never heard a male colleague mention being in therapy. So. That, I already had an idea for my dissertation before I even went to graduate school, and the, and the question was why? What is this coaching thing, and why does this seem to be something that men are okay talking about, but they're not talking about therapy? And so, when I went to graduate school, I had already planned on researching coaching and the difference between this model of helping people and this executive coaching thing versus traditional counseling or therapy, because at the same time, I had. Worked with a coach at IBM. She was a former instructor of mine at, at undergrad, and I said, "What's coaching?" She's like, "Why don't you do six sessions with me?" And so while I was changing careers, I had her as an executive coach, and I thought, "Wow, this feels a lot like counseling. Like it doesn't feel radically different." So it was all these pieces coming together. And when I went to graduate school, my dissertation advisor says, "I don't know anything about coaching, but I study men's issues."、And、he said, "This looks like something that might." Fit under this broader area of like marketing mental health to men. You know, is there is there some service out there? Maybe coaching is a way to get more men. You know, in some type of supportive, you know,、uh, stuff. For sure, thing, yeah.、Uh, without calling it therapy or counseling. So that's really it. Was the initial thing was just kind of an alignment of what I was curious about with my dissertation advisor's area because he he looked at. Uh, marketing mental health to men, men's、uh, differential experience with depression, and those were kind of his big areas. So I started graduate school doing masculinity research before I even knew I wanted to do it, and then over time I got really interested in it, and then started you know I I found there's a shortage of male therapists in graduate school, and so as you mean therapists for males or、uh, male therapists? Male, you know, therapists who are men. There, you know, huh? Interesting. Well, the field of psychology flipped back in the '50s when it was a lab science. It was about 74 to 85 percent male、uh-huh. during the era of behaviorism. But over the years, as the field has 
diversified, you know, and after the cognitive revolution, multicultural revolution, um, we're looking much more broadly about human behavior. The gender uh, ratio has flipped. So now undergraduate students and those going into clinical helping professions are about 75 to 85% female. So then there aren't a lot of male therapists relative um, you know, to 50, 60 years ago. So um, anyway, that, that's, so that's all like the professional side, but there was a personal side to it as well. So um, I grew up in a house where you know, I feel like my parents were pretty egalitarian. I mean, there's some traditional gender roles about who worked and who did what tasks, but my brother and I were taught all tasks. So whether it was mowing the lawn, changing oil in the car, sewing, baking, like we learned all that stuff. And so I always thought gender roles were pretty flexible. Um, although my sister would never had to do any of the yard work, but learned all the <laughs> other stuff. So I think I was always curious about gender, or gender roles at least. And I also was in some ways non-traditional. I, I, I like playing sports. I, I got a couple of different sports I did, but I never liked watching them. And so I grew up in a world where guys often would talk about sports, whether it's they're watching college baseball or ba basketball or NBA. Like, that was an easy way for guys to connect, and I, that was just never a language I spoke. And, and so I would either sit in silence in those, or, or I'd know enough, I'd learn enough that I could kind of throw a comment in and kind of disguise myself as knowing what I was talking about. But I really wasn't interested in it. So that was another one where I thought, like, what is it about this sports thing that, that men are really, will really easily kind of get around and talk, but then they're maybe not having other conversations uh, about other topics or something like that. So if, for me, it was always just kind of wondering, like, what is this gender role stuff? Why aren't we more flexible? Um, and and I, I don't think I felt comfortable being, like, fully restricted, uh, and yet I witnessed that. I, you know, I, I would see some of that restriction going on. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, speaking of that, so can you somehow give us a vague definition of masculinity? Because when I think <laughs> about it, I think about sports, I think about right. leadership, aggression, right. toxic masculinity, right. yeah. you know, all the stuff, and also competitions. Is it a psychological trait? Is it a social image? Is it a symbol? What is it? Yes. Yes to all those things. <laughs> um, you, know, you asked me for a vague definition. I, I mean, I'll give you, may, maybe I'll start the definition with extremes. If you take a evolutionary biology or psychology approach where you're looking at kind of determinism, right, and like biological. So what is it about being biologically male that is unique to biological males compared to you know, biological reproductive females. So I think some people define masculinity as that stuff. Like whatever it is that's unique uh, to males of a species, right, might be described as masculine. But then there's a, a different perspective called social construction, which is more about what are all the attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, what's the, what, what are some of the ways we express and experience gender uh, and, and, how, and whether it and how we associate it representing maleness or femaleness. And so, if we, if, so there's some correlation between how I, sh how I show up biologically and then the, a set of attitudes, behaviors, beliefs uh, that we call masculinity when it's a male body doing these things and maybe doing more of them on average than with female bodies. And then and for a long time, gender was seen as a unidimensional construct. You were either masculine or feminine that's an old model that not too many people adhere to anymore, that is far more complicated than that. Um, as humans, we are all of those things, mm -hmm. and some of us might 
um, exhibit behaviors down on this end and others here, but these things change over time, so they're malleable. So when you ask me, like, what's masculinity or how would you define it, it changes across culture, actually within culture too, right? Mm -hmm. So even within a, in a culture, it's going to vary. It may vary by age. It may vary by racial and ethnic identity. It may vary by uh, region. From country to country, it's different. And across time, it's different. So these things, there, there's some, it's not, it's not a, uh, I don't describe it as a trait necessarily. It's... Um, Can we measure it? Pardon? Can we measure it? Like uh, we think we can. Like a but one, zero to one scale or <laughs> negative one to one scale. Uh, I'll say no to that. Like, we've been trying to measure it and uh, over time our ability to measure it shifts. <laughs> and, and what... As the definition shifts. As the yeah. definition shifts, but then also as the culture shifts. So um, scales that were developed back in the 1950s don't show the same reliability and validity uh, in any of the psychometric properties as they show today. And so it's like, well, have we changed, you know, has our masculinity changed or, you know, gender uh, roles changed? And the answer is, well, yeah, they have. And so therefore people are responding to these same measures and they're getting very different results. So then you come up with a new theory. And then you test that, and how well does this fit? And maybe that fits a particular group of males or men. Um, but then you, you take, and so maybe it's a bunch of you know, white, well-educated college males, which is where a lot of them were developed on. And then how does it look when I take the same measure and give it to this group of men who are at a different age, different look, different, uh, you know. Then it's a little, then the measurements don't work quite so well. And so I, I think it's hard I have yet to find a measure that says this is masculinity or this is not. Now, I do use them. I mean, I use measures of conformity to masculine norms. But you always have to understand where did those norms come from, where were they developed, where was this instrument developed, and how are the studies that validated them, where did those people come from? For now, many of those scales are on U.S. males. Mm -hmm. Right mm -hmm. at higher institutions, but yeah, that's but not the majority. Country, there is definitely a different definition, even from yeah. China. Yeah, I know Absolutely. it's totally different. Yeah. Right? Is that a gender-neutral term, or actually, can you talk about masculinity in a woman, or is purely a man thing for now? Well, I, I think it depends on how it depends on how you define it, right? If we're if we're talking broadly just about gendered things. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do think many people will orient themselves along that continuum, saying, well, I, d I identify this as male stuff or masculine stuff. Uh, and that's some of the research they do. They, they put a whole bunch of traits up, and they ask a whole bunch of people to identify those. Are these masculine, uh, feminine, or neutral, or somewhere in between? And you can find pockets of, of behaviors or traits that people say, yeah, I identify that's kind of a masculine thing. Like aggression usually comes out of that. Um, but that stuff varies too uh, and, and changes from place to place and time to time. So I, I don't know. You, you asked me for a vague definition. And I, so it really depends. It really it depends, depends, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. But so, so yes, females or women or girls can behave in ways that a culture might identify as a masculine thing. Like then, the leaders in a sports, women's sports team, right? Certainly we have something like that there. Yeah, in the United States we've for, for a long time, right? But that's even shifting with Title IX. You know, so, like, as, as more women's sports 
as, as more professional teams have come on, as more schools are required to offer sporting options for women, as women in sport has grown, our ideas about competitiveness, and I mean, those also shift too. Whereas if 70 years ago you only saw males doing sports, you'd say, oh, sports are a male thing, but that's not the case anymore because you see females doing sports too. Interesting. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> like, like I listed in my questions, so during the past 30, I don't know, 50 years, I, I heard an opinion that a lot of people actually hear that opinion is just uh, man has been becoming softer, mm. you know, in terms. So is, is that a trend people discovered in research? Like, is it everything softer? Is yeah, so well, I guess when you say softer, what are th some of the things that you're thinking about? People are just saying, like, you know, for example, I listen to your podcast and people are talking yeah. about back then when you think of masculinity, you think about Rumble. Rumble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you think about Ryan Gosling is kind of like, you know, Sure. Yeah, not super muscle and everything. It looks kind of like sometimes shy and everything, but people yeah, still yeah. think, okay, as time goes by, we probably don't go that extreme to our admiration of muscles, mm -hmm. aggressions, like sports or like computation, those kind of things become mm -hmm. more and more neutral mm -hmm. and softer. Mm -hmm. Is that a trend? Or like another thing you can think about is actually a typical male student or male kid we see. Mm -hmm. Seems like, for some of them, mm -hmm. just like they don't act as... Mask masculine as before when they were kids, like during the 70s, 60s. Right. Do I think it's changing? Yeah, I do think it's changing. <laughs> and I and I don't, I, I can't say for the better or for the worse, other than I think it's just different. But it's always been that way. So when, when, I, when I teach about kind of the historical arc of masculinity and masculine presentation, e even, if, even if we just look at like uh, Europe, medieval Europe, when you look at you know, the, the height of masculinity in, 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 with European uh, kings, I mean, these are people who ruled over large, vast empires, controlled armies. You know, had you know, world at the finger. They were wearing dresses and fl fluffy skirts and high heel shoes and wigs, right? And so, back then, we would have associated that with extremely masculine. Now we don't generally. Uh, and then you know, but things shift over time. And so, uh, in the United States, at least, you know, when, when you would say, "Are are we softer? Are we different?" Um, a lot of the masculinity research, we're kind of in like a still a, a post-World War II, 1950s idea of kind of masculinity or masculine norms. I, I think those are still the things that kind of drive people's idea about what's masculine or not. And in the 80s, there was a big drive for muscularity. I mean, that, was, that was, you know, for men in, in, in particular, that was like a, a big thing if you trace men's body image over the last decades. So getting really big, yeah. that's, that's changed though. Now it's, well, we want you to be muscly, but we want you to be really lean, not have a lot of body fat, and so we want you to look fit and ripped, but not all bulky and steroided out. Um, and you know, maybe we didn't care so much what you wore, now you have to look kind of clean cut a little bit, but you know, it used to be you could have hairy chest you know, coming out and yeah. long hair, and now Skin it's like, protection. Right, yeah. <laughs> and now For it's sure. like, no, you know, now, now you know, some boys men are shaving their bodies, and, but you know, those all reflect I think the question is, are those reflecting, is it just reaction to media changing or is media reflecting how masculinity is changing? The answer is they're doing it to each other. Um, as we've objectified the male body, we've objectified the female body for thousands of years, um, but we're now starting to do very similar things to male bodies in advertising and stuff, and as you've seen a male bodies object objectified, you're seeing different influences on men and boys about their bodies and body image. Uh, and perhaps some of that change, that softness is them you know, reacting to change in style. Mm -hmm. 
but I, I used to think about those things as important because I think they're interesting to think about. But they're still like external expressions of gender, right? Like what I wear is just something you see on the outside. What about the behaviors? That's the thing that I'm like more interested in is is masculine is masculinity changing from the inside. So if we associate, let's say if we associate masculinity like 1950s masculinity, like the rut in the United States, rugged individualist, I make my own path, you know, I make my own success. I'm a leader. Uh, I'm self-reliant. I don't ask for others for help. Uh, are we different than that now? I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that's still there, right? It's still a, a norm. It's still something we use to describe masculinity. But I, I think we're expanding other ways for men to show up in their, in their worlds. So I'll narrow it down even more specifically. Let's look at fatherhood. I know you and I were talking about that before. You know, a the stereotype of the 1950s working man Right, he was gone all day long, and let's say he has married, has children. He's gone all day long. Comes home, has dinner prepared, has a pipe or whatever a drink. You know, may, maybe sees the children at a distance, but maybe not expected to, to be doing a lot of those caring things. And then goes to bed, and it repeats. There are a whole broad range of ways that men are parents nowadays that weren't as visible back then. So whether it's single fathers or gay fathers, uh, or just uh, stay-at-home fathers, or men who just want to be more involved as a parent uh, in their children's lives. I think in that way that their masculinity has changed. Or you've got, like in a workplace, so if you've got, you know, uh, newer generations of workers saying, no, it's, you know, a paternal leave is important to me, or, you know, or family leave, I want to be able to take four weeks home with the birth of my child. That wouldn't have been, that wasn't a thing, you know, yeah, 50, laugh 60 at you. years ago, right. And even when they're available, still men aren't always taking them. So it's just because they're available doesn't mean men feel like they can take them. But there's certainly a lot more that are asking for it, and they're saying that these are important values. So, like to me, that would be a sign that masculine norms are changing. In that case, very specifically around fatherhood and/or intersection with work or work identity. What about responsibilities? Uh, taking responsibilities, taking risk, and sometimes support the family. Because I don't know, I just recently have seen too many single moms. Yeah. I just saying like, okay, these kids, basically they got you pregnant when they're mm -hmm. like 18, 20 or something. And I kind of feel like, you know, this is basically a, a childish thing. Mm -hmm. I wish you could grow up as a man mm -hmm. to take responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So is that a... Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I've thought about like, are, are men more or less responsible now than they used to be? Or finding excuses? for yeah. not success or not working or I don't know yeah for me like if I think from China right, a lot of people not a considerable considerable amount of people are like in Japan it's just like they refuse to work they just mm -hmm. say like you know I just don't want to grow up mm -hmm. uh, if I need to support a family fine I just won't get married mm -hmm. I won't find a girlfriend I won't yeah. actually I just live in the basement of my parents house mm -hmm. it seems like that thing is a trend I don't know mm -hmm. how big of a percentage is going to go there mm -hmm. but I see seems like those kind of things have become more and more normal in our days mm -hmm. I just don't know if that's related to masculinity well so my, Michael Kimmel's a sociologist that studies some of the stuff and I mean he wrote the book Guyland um, where the perilous world of boys when they become men um, I know some sociologists have looked at that and tried to understand like adolescence has become extended so if, if we go back 60 years ago you know, what were your options as a male in the United States, at least, if you're graduating high school? Well, many might go into the service. 
some will go into vocation, some, a small percentage might go into college, um, and many married at a much younger age. So the uh, age at which people partner and, and marry is much later now than it was back then. And so, you know, are, are they now in this kind of extended period of adolescence where back then you had markers of responsibility? Like, if you were enlisted, right? I mean, you, yeah. you, know, you were pretty responsible there. Um, if you were married and already a child or, or were working, you were a breadwinner back then or you were So I, I think as we delay those things, maybe some of those other behaviors aren't changing. People are still having sex. And, you know, the consequences of those are much different now than they were back then. Um, if there's a support network in place, if they have a place to go live, if it's in a parent's basement, uh, I guess that's the question is, has our social structure changed in a way that is more supportive of an extended adolescence? Yeah. Right. Or just put, putting less pressure on this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, we can't look at masculinity in isolation either. So if we look at opportunities for girls and women as a result of the women's movement here in the U.S., um, you know, the goal for part of the goal for that, or the outcomes, is to expand opportunities uh, for women's roles. Uh, some people have argued we haven't done a very good job of doing that for, for boys and men. So while, you know, women have increased opportunities at least, now it doesn't always get reflected that way in practice, but if they're being encouraged that you too can go into the sciences and you too can do X, Y, or Z, you too can work, and um, I don't think that we've seen as much uh, work for boys saying, yeah, you too can, as a male, be a kindergarten teacher, or you could be right a care, in a caring profession. Or we, the economies change, right? There's a lot more service-oriented positions than there were back then too. And so, I don't know if we've done enough to tell boys and men that there's other ways to take responsibility and, and show up, you know, and, and be a contributor to society outside of those very clearly defined ones from decades ago. So that is one concern I have. So basically, um, if you open up one direction, you should also open up the other direction. Yeah. And if you just don't close the direction from like male, yeah. and then say, hey, number one, you cannot still do be nurse, or you will be judged if you become a nurse or anything. But yeah. meanwhile, you kind of lose out of the masculinity requirement. Then the softer kids just mm -hmm. figure like, I actually would love to be a nurse or something, but yeah. now I just the door is closed. Yeah. So they don't live to the full of their life. Yeah. And so even the, I want to go back to even that language of softer and even maybe get a little bit more specific. It's, I mean, I, I think we have sometimes equated that as less than or less desirable, right? Yeah. Uh, we even do it when we talk about skills for college students. Like, oh, those are soft skills versus, you know, these technical ones. Um, I think the problem with that, though, is it doesn't put any of that stuff in context. And so if, so let's use emotional um, restriction, right, and like stoicism. There's certainly, and that's been associated with masculinity for a long time. So that males generally, uh, as they get older, uh, have a less, uh, you know, more restrictive range of emotions that they're kind of allowed to have, you know, without being judged. Um, you know, anger is one that they do, but it's it's not okay uh, socially necessarily for uh, a boy or man to cry, right, mm -hmm. or show mm -hmm. some of these sort of vulnerable emotional expression. And there might be environments where we, that isn't helpful for, for them, right? So professions where that, that would be a detriment if they showed up, you know, let's say, let's say somebody's a first responder or if they're, you know, in law enforcement, you know, you wouldn't want a police officer in, in a tense moment, you know, bringing a tear, right? Um, however, 
if there's an occupation over here that benefits from vulnerability and, and somebody's ability to know their own emotions and connect with others and provide care and support, um, we should be teaching people how to do that or supporting them in that so they can be successful in that role. Uh, and so if we're not providing those opportunities, we're not honoring boys and men that have that as, as the way they're kind of, maybe the, the natural way they show up, and we don't give them opportunities to, to show it, um, yeah, I don't know. They could get stuck in a basement. So, so they're, they're less prepared, basically. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, according to what you said, I, I, I admit that probably software is not the, a great word to use. Mm -hmm. More about it's more about masculinity has changed. Mm -hmm. There are certainly softer than the standard from 1950s, but mm -hmm. as we said, 1950s mm -hmm. nobody says that's the golden standard or anything. Right. So yeah, if as long as your social construction changed with this, the definition changed with this, but also your social role, your yes. social opportunity changed with this, then it's actually pretty smooth. You got it. Well, yeah, I wish. Well, it will be. It, will <laughs> it be could be smoother. Smooth. Yeah, I think because that that's you know I appreciate you saying that because it made me think. It's you know sometimes we ask about is masculinity changing. Maybe the question to ask is, is our social context and environment changing? The it's more about gender yes. roles then, yeah. And how well do these constructs fit this new world? I mean, this is, we are just in a completely different, we're not, we're not in the manufacturing age like we were. I mean, there's yeah. still people who do that, yeah. but automation has, has shifted some of that stuff. Um, the, the types of jobs that are available here, I mean, there's so much more diversity and variety in, in them and some of the skills are required to be successful in them. And so um, if that construct from 60 years ago isn't working in this environment, we either need to change the construct or you know, teach people how to be successful in this new social world uh, or they'll be left behind. Or what we're seeing now, you know, you've got increased, you know, men are um, at greater risk for completing suicides in many countries. Um, they die anywhere from five to f 15 years earlier than women on average. And, and so there, there are real effects. Um, you know, we've got to sort out why are these things happening at, 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 at such different levels. Interesting, yeah. I, I, from Lehman's point of view, like I heard this kind of conversation all the time, just like women, you have rights and people create opportunities and advocate for those kind of things for a long, long time. And finally, we feel like, okay, finally, mm -hmm. uh, the opportunity is getting more and more, one more equal. But then it's kind of squeezed the space of the man, mm -hmm. unless you actually do this roughly the same thing, and then basically we kind of blur the how to say the the differences between genders mm -hmm. to make it more equal egalitarian yeah. point of view. That would be nice, but it kind of like feel like it's for a, a lot of people. It feels like it's one directional. Yeah. But so, what do you think about the feminine uh, how to say uh, movement about you know before? Women was probably like here mm -hmm. in terms of opportunities, rights, and everything. But now, with all these years of effort, everywhere you know, you are constantly reminded of that. You know, women, they are equally capable, if not more capable. They, mm -hmm. they should have get, be given those kind of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of feel like, uh, where is the thing going? If this is male, this is female, are they roughly equal now? Or actually, it's time for us to actually rethink. Maybe male, should, should, we should actually shift our attentions oh. or resource a little bit to the male now. Or actually, it's still like that. It's just less extreme land before yeah that's a that's a really good question I, I this is not my quote but you know I remember somebody years ago it said the only problem with the women's movement is there hasn't been an equal one for men to, to meet them halfway yeah um, and, and so what I'm about to say I'm gonna give a caveat because it, it's a little bit more of an I don't know it's a pessimistic view which I, I don't necessarily hold but um, a question we should ask ourselves I think is important to ask is 
some of the traits that we associate with masculinity. So let's say aggressiveness uh, over assertiveness, um, self-reliance, not, you know, not asking for help or not needing help. So some of the things that we for a long time have kind of associated. You know, are we, are we telling women if you do these things then you'll be successful in this world, right? So are we seeing an increase in masculine behaviors as a function of generating success for women? And if that's so, I don't know that that's the right answer because... Work like a man. Right. Basically, well, yeah. because guess what? What else comes with that, right? If you're over-involved with work, if you're denying your emotional experience, you're also going to see some of the problems that we see that men experience from, from doing those things. So that's where I think, like, it's hard to do this because, you know, if, if, this, if this was the masculine ideal, if we're doing this, at what point are we not just lifting women up but then pulling up all these other problems that men have experienced? So I, I'd rather think of it, you know, can... can I guess it's a cliche, but more the expanding the pie thing instead of this either or like, and, and if you're getting more, that means I'm getting less. Cause I, I think that's the threat response. You know, when men feel threatened, we'll say, mm -hmm. Oh, look at you, you've got all these rights and I'm losing them. And now I'm going to reestablish my power and dominance. That's not going to work for anybody. Um, but if we're stuck in this, either I have it, uh, or I don't, and you have it, or I don't, that's not going to work. Is there some other way here <laughs> that, that we all, you know, again, I don't know what graphically looks like, uh, other than expanding the pie and expanding the possibilities. That's open up the boundary, huh? Open up yeah. the boundaries. Yeah. Um, now, and then on the other end, so the other kind of, ex like the fantasy or extreme is, why do we even have gender? Like, couldn't we just have a genderless world where we don't say aggression is masculine, we just say it's human. We don't say compassion and caring is feminine, we just say it's human. Um, I don't know that that's ever gonna happen. Um, or is it a good thing? Or is it a good thing, right? It's just, um, but I still think it's an important question to ask is like how can we give people as much flexibility as possible and adaptability as possible to meet the, the varying demands and changing social world so they can all be successful? Uh, because when women experience more financial stability and health, everybody benefits. Like these things, every, everybody has the potential benefit from it. But if we always see it as a zero-sum game and it comes at some cost, then I don't think that works um, you know, for a number of reasons. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, back into that, if we kind of start a blur, let's, say, let's take a yeah. imagination on a generalist world, right? Mm -hmm. What are the role models people like? kids should look up to like before and when I grow up I just of course look look up to my mother, father because I'm a male and if I'm a female probably I'll look up to my mother yeah. and see all those kind of things now it kind of blur that yeah. uh, I don't know <laughs> I find it difficult for, for myself to accept that but yeah. I understand the, the point but uh, I'm yeah. just saying like it's hard for me to imagine a world like that because you know sometimes you, you get this kind of doctrine is almost like a man should do this and that and look at your father he's mm -hmm. supporting the family and everything mm -hmm. when I grow up I feel that, that that's a that's a beautiful thing yeah you know you you actually take your responsibility you're put in that position mm -hmm. with your gender and you just need to be successful there's a lot of responsibilities on you it's a pressure yeah. it's also motivations yeah but now if you tell me like yeah it's fine if you do, do that and it's fine if you do that and it's fine sure. I, I may become like lost it's just like okay everything is fine uh, sure so since when uh, from where or towards which goal should I should I restrain myself? Should my how to say skill myself, mm -hmm. polish myself, steal myself to actually mm -hmm. become the role figure mm -hmm. I want to be? Well, I'll, 
I'll give you like just a, a very specific finding that came out of a study that I did with my a couple colleagues um, at uh, University of Texas at Austin on stay-at-home fathers, and we ended up titling it "I'm Just Providing for My Family." So, and this is a very specific example of it, but. Um, Many of these guys in our study, so we did some focus group, you know, interviews, qualitative stuff, but then we did a nationwide one. We look at well-being, relationship satisfaction, uh, confidence in their skills for different parenting tasks, uh, from providing care but also providing autonomy and supporting, you know, kids' development, all these types of things. Um, in, in many of these cases, these were, most of the time, these were uh, married men whose partner had a career that made more than they did. Mm -hmm. And so it came down to looking at cost of childcare and doing the math and saying, well, uh, just because I'm, I was raised male and to be the breadwinner and, and be the provider, that's not gonna work financially. That wouldn't make any sense. We're gonna like lose money if you stay home as, as the mother and I go to work. So therefore, by default, I'm gonna be the one that ends up working. Um, these men, a lot of them, kind of reconceptualize what providing for the family means. And so providing certainly can mean financially, right? Like I bring home the paycheck and I'm gonna cover expenses and food and all that, your roof over your head. But you can also provide by providing childcare, nurturance, um, watching the kid at home, reading, teaching them how to read, like doing all the things that we, you know, for a long time we associate with uh, motherhood. Why do those have to be gendered in the sense that why, you know, couldn't one of those kids hypothetically then grow up and say, um, yeah, my mom was this great, powerful financial earner and did really great in this field. And my dad in this case um, was really, you know, a lot of fun and was there for me when I, you know, got picked on at school and helped me with my homework. And, like, why does it have to be what it used to be? Like what we valued as masculine or feminine as far as roles go? Mm -hmm. um, they had a lot of pride in what they were doing. Uh, they felt a lot of pride in providing those different roles. Now, some struggled in learning to because they, they, they didn't grow up that way. <laughs> they mm -hmm. didn't grow up thinking they were going to be that. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're all skills that they learned. <laughs> um, I understand that. For a, like, I would say for now, probably for a minority of people, like yeah. a male, yeah. who basically don't appreciate, don't like the, the, the other way, but then they say, say hey, I want to be a mother. Uh, I want to take the mother's role and yeah. provide for, for my family in this way. That's fine. But I'm still thinking, like, uh, do we, are, are males or females born with some trait? It's just like masculinity will make the majority of the men feel comfortable, like going compete, going sports and everything. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they were forced to do that. Yeah. Right? If they were forced to do that, figure figure that. If I, what if I don't like it just like you? Mm -hmm. And then given the opportunity, it would be nice yeah, to yeah. be appreciated yeah. in another way, right? But for yeah. the majority... Should we, should we still advocate like what a successful man figure is, or should we just stop doing that? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should stop modeling what a good human is, right? Broadly, human, right? Yeah. No, I'm just saying gender, gender wise. Um, I think we should provide I think it'd be nice if we provided um, more opportunities for people to kind of sort that out themselves, and maybe try some of those roles on earlier, okay. so yeah. they don't get pigeonholed too young. So I'm not saying like, you know, that it needs to go away. And I'm very clear with, uh, about this because people will sometimes say, oh, you're trying to turn, you know, you're, you're, you support the idea of like turning men into women or like, right, or taking away masculinity. Not, not at all. Like, I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with masculinity or, mm -hmm. right. 
unless it's causing harm to self or others. For me, that's, that's where problems are with gender roles. If, if what I do causes harm to myself, if I'm engaging in behaviors that are physically harmful mm -hmm. uh, or I'm causing harm to another human being, I think it's fair to say that's a problem, right? That, and I think that's what, when we say toxic masculinity, that's often what people talk about. Um, but if I'm, if we're, only, if we're socializing boys to have this very narrow definition of here's what you can do to be a successful or an ideal male, and it doesn't include all these other things, um, I just don't think that's a fair. Um, there might be some that do that quite well mm -hmm. and uh, succeed and they're, and they're happy and everybody else around them is happy and, and that's great. But what about for the ones that don't? And they don't feel like they have any other way to show responsibility or achieve if it, unless it's in this very narrow domain. Otherwise you're a failure, basically, right? right? That's what it says, yeah. Yeah, and then how do, we, how do people deal with failure? Mm -hmm. <laughs> some deal with it through numbing, through substance use. Some will isolate themselves socially. Some will act out uh, at others. So if, if we're putting people in that situation, I, I don't see how it's beneficial to us as a collective. And so I guess going back to your question, I think it's just more about presenting more options. So multiple figures you can look after. Yeah. Here's a role model for uh, masculinity, yeah. like masculine dad. Here's a dad who is actually going to do this. Here's a dad yeah. who is going to do that. Yeah. Just have more stories, I, have I, more movies made I th to, to, to basically let people know there yeah. are multiple options. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that's a, that is happening. I mean, even if you look at you know people who do are critical media analysts and look at gender in, in the media, it's like the way, you know, there, there's still all the same stereotypical ways that gender, but then there's also, it has expanded. I mean, you're seeing more representations. Um, oh shoot, what was I gonna tell you? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. it's gone. Okay, <laughs> yeah. But then uh, I just wanna still push on that idea a little bit. Yeah. That is, um, when I was listening to something Jordan Peterson was trying to say, is just the reason he became so popular, it's almost because that uh, he gave those male uh, opportunity to take responsibilities mm -hmm. which nobody have forced them or pushed them mm -hmm. to take before mm -hmm. so do you think actually how to say calling for responsibility calling for something you don't have is going to make you better If you provide the support in the in the skill development to fill mm -hmm. that gap, so I I mean I and I'm and I say that because I'm thinking about like in clinical terms. Yeah. Um, you know, for when I think about what supports people in positive change, right? Like, actually, this doesn't even be clinical. When you think about your own, like, think about education. Like, you know, we learn when there's a, a, when we're motivated, when there's a little gap between yeah. where we are yeah. now and where we want to be, but for that to happen. I need to have some structural support in place. I can't go from arithmetic to calculus, right? Even though I may want to get there, we have this whole developmental stretch like, to get people there. Um, and I think, so if we say men need to show up and be responsible, yeah. right? And, and for that to be motivating for men and to be helpful for men, we also then have to give them opportunities to, to practice that. And, and, and this is, I'll go back to what I said before, responsibility can be defined in any number of ways. Yep. Um, I think if it's too narrow, if it says you can only show responsibility by doing X, Y, or Z because that's what men do, I, I don't think you're gonna get 
uh, a full, um, healthy approach to it. Because you're saying, I need to be here, I'm here now, and you're not, but you're not offering me any pathway to get there. When people feel threatened like that, I mean, I, I think a lot of people will experience that threat and they'll go into defense mode, and you know, whether it's blaming and saying, I don't have this because you, uh, or you haven't given the opportunity, or you've taken this from me, and it becomes that zero-sum kind of reactive um, approach to it. I've got no problem with saying men need to take more responsibility. But you don't get to pick and choose what that, what that is, though. So I'll give you an example. So if we say, you know, men, you need to show up and you need to be responsible, that also may include responsibility for your health. And so that may mean you need to go get screened, get your prostate cancer screened, get testicular cancer screened. Some of the stuff that men don't do at high, you know, have not done at high levels <laughs> for a long time. Uh, you might need to watch what you eat. Uh, you might need to drink less. You know, that's also being responsible. But some of those traits of not seeking help and kind of, you know, being overly concerned with risk-taking, that's antithetical to showing up and being responsible. Um, but I don't think there's anything gendered about like, taking care of your health or, you know, or t taking more calculated risks or a little less you know, harmful uh, risks. So that's, for me, almost looked like the stereotype for masculinity, which is the toxic side of yeah. the mas masculinity. And certainly, uh, we want to remove that. What about the good ones, like the aggression, for example? Do you want to, do you feel like, I don't know, are we losing aggression for in the younger, younger generation? I don't know. Uh, I certainly haven't seen evidence of it. <laughs> I, I mean, I just need to admit, I, I, I have been in the United States for, since 2008. Yeah. I've never seen a single fist fight. Oh, but I never go to the bar, so maybe it's just me. Maybe that's why. So, yeah. <laughs> I've had a few people really peaceful. <laughs> it's like that's what we call selection bias. You know, you know, you're hanging out here on a university campus, and yeah, you know, yeah. um, I've seen fist fights. I've I've been I've been at a party when a gun's been pulled. I, oh, okay, I guess. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, it it's hard to it's hard to answer that question because of the rise of social media. And access to information. So yeah. even the aggression question is, you know, do we have the same levels of it? But now it's getting captured on a smartphone and then you know broadcast to millions of people, or uh, maybe we have less of it, but it's getting one of this incident is getting broadcast to millions of people, and so yeah. then we're overestimating the actual base rate of, of what's going on. Um, we know we have a problem with you know m multiple shooting, mass shootings, you know, three or more victims. I mean that is on the rise. So I don't know, like, it, I guess it just depends on how aggression sh shows up. Um, but aggression, even when I talk about aggression, aggression isn't masculine or, f or, or, or not. It, it is gendered in the way it gets expressed in cultures. Mm -hmm. And so um, the early studies on aggression showed pretty significant gender differences in rates of aggression. But when they kind of expanded that construct to include relational aggression, gossiping, rumor spreading, social exclusion, which in the United States, traditional gender roles, that would have, those would have been defined as ways that women are more likely to show aggressive than kind of physical fist bite stuff. Yep. Those, that gap in aggression actually decreased when you- Yeah, are showing that? Yeah, when you, when you, when you yeah. broaden the meaning of aggression. So it's just to say that as humans, we can be aggressive in any number of ways. The question is, have we, do, we, do we do gendered aggression? And I think we do. Um, but that also means that it doesn't, maybe it doesn't have to show up that way all the time. Um, and can you channel 
whatever that is into some other productive pursuit or, or, or some other way. We could do a whole sidebar on anger and its expression and, and you know how it's socialized. Maybe we'll get there. I don't know, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't see evidence of less aggression. Uh-huh. But some others have said if if you look if you like anthropologists if you've looked at human societal wide violence over you know ten or maybe thousands of years they say as a whole globally we actually have a probably a much more peaceful existence than we did a thousand years ago. Makes sense. Yeah, aggression is probably not a valuable such a valuable trait compared to in the ancient times, right? right. It, where war become like a, yeah. almost your day job. Yeah. Once a while. Interesting. But so. that's easy for me to say sitting here in La Crosse, Wisconsin, because I'm not in a high conflict zone, right? And yeah. so my world, my, you know, this conversation would would be very different if you plot me into a high violent neighborhood or in a in a country that's in you know engaged in civil war, right? And so I, that's the other thing is this stuff. Certainly, there are pockets of it where it, it's out of control and it's it's horrible and it's causing all kinds of problems. I'm just not in one right here. So yeah, because this kind of conversation kind of reminded me because when I was uh, back in, uh, I was thinking about my country, right? Before I came here, I talked mm-hmm. with my friends and everything. They were talking about how bad the young generation is. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the responsibility, all the respons- responsibility is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't work. They don't want to actually show up on time. They cannot afford this. They, can't, they don't do that. Mm-hmm. But now it turns out that just sometimes I, li- I, I agree with a lot of them. Mm-hmm with what I see. But then I started to remember like, when my parents talked this exactly the same thing to me. That's right. <laughs> and that's the moment I figured out, okay, you know, they, I was talk, t- listen to some music and they say, wow, this is kind of crap. And now I listen to the young, young kids. But what are you listening? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's basically I couldn't take that. So sometimes it just kind of got the illusion. It's just like we're so familiar with the old standard. Yes. Including masculinity, right? And yep. all, all the gender roles and everything. And give me the 20 years and everything. I look at all the young kids just like, you guys are basically... You know, worthless. Right. And then you start think about yourself. Maybe they're not actually softer, softer no. or anything. It's just they're redefining the whole thing. Maybe. And and according to your observation, actually, there's nothing to worry about, right? Mm-hmm. It's more about basically make your make you free, make mm-hmm. each each individual free. That's I think a great s- s- summary of it. And so I'll give you a metaphor that I use. You know, if I do like a presentation on this, I don't know how familiar you are with Swiss Army knives, um, but. Yep. Yeah, and I actually meant to. Oh, I don't have my. I meant to actually I have a lot of them, and I got one actually still sitting in Atlanta, the airport. I oh, didn't really? know. Oh, I know. I've lost knife. a couple of years. <laughs> so, so you know the classic. So the classic Swiss Army knife, the Victorinox, is that small one that just has, I think, scissors, knife, toothpick, file, and you know, tweezers. So when I talk about gender roles, I say, imagine that's masculinity right now, as as you know it. Like that's the world you've grown up with. Uh, and so, and whatever we can say, the nail file represents emotional restriction. And so, right now, you've been in situations where emotional restriction—you pull out, you pull out that nail file and you use it—and it's been, it's worked for you. Maybe it's prevented you from crying when you were getting hazed at us, you know, in the locker room. And so that helped maybe reduce how much more you were going to get picked on or something. So you're like, oh, this this tool's pretty good, right? <laughs> like I've used it a couple times. I held back my tears and everything worked out well. Um, now, the problem with this is, now let's take 25 years from now, you're in a romantic relationship or marriage or whatever, where you know humans need to understand each other's emotions and provide some emotional support. If all you have is that nail file, and you're like, not, not gonna go there, <laughs> can't think about that, not gonna talk about it, uh, that's probably gonna cause problems in your relationship. And we, we do know this from research. Uh, uh, you know, Men that score higher on 
those scales of measuring emotional restriction tend to ha report less satisfaction in their romantic relationships. They often will also um, report less uh, satisfaction in the role of parenting. I mean, think about it as a parent, how many times it requires an emotional understanding to, to help meet somebody. So that's, the, so that's masculinity, a, r a very restricted version of masculinity. When I talk about how to change, it doesn't mean get rid of the nail file. It doesn't say throw all those things out and come up with an entirely new configuration. If you look at the Swiss champ, right, that big one that's about like four inches thick, there's still a nail file on there. But there's also a fish saw. I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of magnifying glass. It's just loaded. That's how I would like to see us do gender, which is add a bunch of other options. Expand your default options from this, like, five sets of behaviors. And probably a lot of people are still going to go with the default, which is fine. That's fine. Mm -hmm. There might be situations. Actually, I'm, I, no, I'll scratch that. There will be situations where that default is, is the, the right. maybe most yeah. appropriate for you and yeah. the social setting. Um, but now you know you've got a bunch of other options, so you don't have to do the default. Maybe try the default and it doesn't work. Now I'm going to try this other thing. That's how I would like to see masculinity. I, I'd like to see it expand. Um, be far more inclusive, and then as a result, provide uh, you know people with healthier ways of showing up in the world, either to, you know for themselves or for, for others in their life. Same thing with feminines, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I yeah, same thing. Well, yeah. I guess you take that same metaphor. Yeah. Let's look at assertiveness. Like you know, it didn't used to be they taught assertiveness training for for girls and women. But now it's like, here, learn these skills that will come in handy in this particular occupational setting or something else. But you don't want to show up assertive or you know, aggressive, maybe, in, you know, in a romantic relationship. Right. You, may, you do want to be assertive, but maybe not aggressive. So again, I, it does work both ways. I think it's expanding the options, uh, giving you behavioral flexibility or adaptability. And do you feel, feel, feel that is happening? I do. I, I, I do think so. So actually, in general, we're getting better, right? I think so. so. Yeah. Um, I think people who are way better, which way bigger tolerance compared to, yeah, things back in the 70s. Yeah. I've heard that from people. I mean, yeah. I've even heard from older people in my life, you know, great aunts and uncles, grandparents, saying, oh, yeah, you know, we never, I never could have done this. Like, I never could have said this, and now people are doing it. Um, and I guess because much of my research in, was on fatherhood, I, you know, so that's a lot of those examples come, you know, come into my head. I heard a lot of guys say, I always wished I could have done that. Right? I wished I could have taken time off and spent, but I couldn't, or I didn't feel like I could, or I'd be judged. Um, and so I, I do hear a lot of those wishes. Like, I, I wish I had an option like you do. My dad even said that. My dad was a you know, great athlete, you know, football player, wrestler, uh, pole vaulter. <laughs> like, so I mean, in many ways, very masculine. Um, and yet, as, as we got older, like, there were times we said, yeah, I wish I could have done some of the things. I wish I had some of the opportunities that you all had, or I wish I had, I, I would have liked to do this uh, that I didn't have available back then in the 50s. So I, I hear that. I, I think there's, there's some wishfulness. And so that, that, to me, is a sign that people are observing things to be different and, and having more opportunity. So putting yourself in a cage, basically, you are losing all the fun. Of the I other think side. so. Yeah. So let's go back to parenting. Yeah. So for nowadays, what do you think? If I'm, I have a boy. Yeah. So if I'm going to raise your boy, what would be a nice approach to somehow show him the responsibility and everything? It's like the classic 
we would say non-toxic masculinity yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, respect him enough to to give him all these opportunities. So he feel he had he didn't wish something yeah. happened. Actually, he did have nothing happen. Yeah, I think you just answered your question. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think that last piece. Um, let me give you one very specific example that I talk about a lot when I talk about communication. Um, this is not my research. This is you know some communication scholars uh, sort this out. This will be a very specific example, then I'll go maybe back to what you asked. Uh, somebody had done a study of how parents respond to you know, emotional pain of their children. And so they, you know, I'll just give you an example of what the scenario might be. So let's say a kid, a boy, in this case, you know, we'll talk about boys and girls, although you know, certainly not restricted to those two labels. But let's say we have a girl that gets picked on in the playground at school. She comes home. And the types of questions historically or traditionally are asked of little girls are, you know, how did you, how, how did you feel? Or, oh, you must have been right. So there's a lot of emotion-focused questions. Um, twin brother <laughs> gets picked on at school, comes home. Historically or traditionally, a lot of the questions are, what did you do? What did he do? What happened next? How bad did he hurt? <laughs> right, right. Did you fight back? And they found that parents that respond to their daughter, so parents, again, on average, historically, respond to their daughter's uh, pain by exploring emotions, and they ex uh, explore their uh, son's pain by looking at problem solving. And over time, if you repeat that hundreds and thousands of times, you now have very gendered approaches to conflict. And you've got daughters who are, who are encouraged to explore their emotions, how it made them feel, You've got boys who are told, we're not going to deal with the emotional stuff. Let's solve this problem. Let's figure out what to do. Neither one of those is good or bad, but extremes of either without the other doesn't make you a good problem solver or you know, good in human relationships. So back to your original question, if, you know, if I'm you know, parenting children and that happens, I would say give them both, right? Give them space and time to explore the feelings, that, you know, how that felt when happened, and explore what are we going to do next time, or you know, how can we prevent this, or what can we do, here are some three options. I think looking at the ways that um, we show up differently for boys or girls, what we're providing for them, or withholding from them, and trying to level the playing field a little bit. Um, there's been a lot of research on uh, you know, just affection, physical affection that, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, when I say it, I'm speaking of the research I know. Like in the U.S. culture, um, historically, infant boys are like hugged and cuddled a little less on average than infant girls. And if you run that over the lifespan, and you, and you start to see parents pulling away physically from their, from their children around school age, like six or seven, um, well, what happens when, you know, they, they were having, you know, boys are having a little less, you know, Touch, hugging, all that stuff helps regulate. That's how that's how bodies learn to self-regulate. I mean, there, it's, there's all it's built in the nervous system and limbic uh, response in the brain. Uh, if they're deprived of that, maybe they, you know maybe run that many years, um, they aren't aware of their emotion. They don't know how to get emotional needs met. They may seek to get them met in other ways, right? Through sexual activity or through substance or avoidance or whatever it might be. Um, and so that's a very specific one. It's like, as a parent, it's like, well, make sure that you do give some space to stay physically connected to your son. 
just like you might or just like people might do for their daughters. Like, not, not to pull away that often happens in that way. Um, I think just giving them more behavioral flexibility. And, and so instead of treating them as a girl or as a boy, treat them as human. As human, yeah. And, and it's, I mean, I know that, that you know, there, uh, on the extreme end, there's people that attempt to do gender, genderless parenting. Um, and often, I don't know if you've heard in interviews. Genderless parenting in regarding to boy or girl or in regarding to father and mother? Uh, to the child. To the child. I'm saying we're not going to even tell them what gender we think they are. We're not going to use pronouns. Mm -hmm. We're not going to use, you know, the uh, stereotypical color schemes. We're going to do, you know, gender neutral toys. Um, and that men in you, and I've listened to interviews of them early on, and then six years later, it's like they can't do it. You don't have control of that. They got it either way, yeah. Right, I mean, society, society the, the, yeah. the, 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 the need to make gender binary culturally is so yeah. strong yeah. that it's very difficult to control all these environments. But that, but that doesn't mean to throw away some of those, you know, approaches. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I guess you could just pick any number of behaviors or attitudes we associate as being more one gender than another. And I would just say, just pause and think about what are the consequences if I only approach my son with, with this? Uh, what are the costs and what are the benefits? Because I don't think we, I sometimes think we forget about the cost. So with boys, if there are absolute benefits socially to say, yeah, at some point, it's okay if you cry here at home, but if that mm -hmm. happens in the classroom, you know, you might get teased, right? Um, taken to an extreme, that's the same boy that over time will learn that's, you know, they may learn it's never, there's nowhere I can go to be myself emotionally, and so I'm either, I'm just going to take, hold it all in, and that doesn't work out well for anybody. Uh, um, you know, it, it either comes out as depression, anxiety, and sometimes... You know, I think a lot of to yeah, a lot of actually that of that explains the depression and the suicide. We, Absolutely. We yeah. um, so that's where I'd say like, give them, give all children safe spaces at home to tolerate some of this stuff and explore some of this stuff, um, and, and support and model it. That's probably the most important part. Um, and I and I'm gonna be honest with you. I study this stuff. I struggle. I do struggle with it. Like I, I was raised. You know, Biological male, I associate as, you know, in some ways quite masculine. Um, allowing myself to be emotionally vulnerable in the form of crying in front of my children is not easy. <laughs> I what still, about on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I could probably get there. Well, the funny thing is I can do it. I mean, I, I'm actually more fine now than I probably used to be doing it publicly like you know I, I gave an address at the American Psychological Station I was I was talking about my dad and, and growing up and I you know it was fine for me in that in that context to, to show some emotion but the irony is I have a hard time doing it around my girls which is kind of ironic you know it'll be after the fact of like oh my gosh I you know I, I that quick reaction was I can't let them see me this way like what are they going to think and my wife after the fact would be like they'll just think that dads have feelings too <laughs> like the world's not even crashing down yeah but but that's you know that was the world i grew up in and so even though i i know i'm capable of doing it in certain contexts it'd be a whole it'd be different if i you know in 40 something years i'd never shed a tear um but there's just i, I guess i'm being vulnerable and self-disclosing that that I, I know how hard it is and so if you can give 
people opportunities earlier, give them more behavioral adaptability and flexibility, it won't, it won't be such a struggle. And then if you get, you know, if you're, let's say your son is struggling with something, right, in middle school or high school, uh, as, as long as he's learned that, oh, but, you know, there is a place I can go and be myself, and, and, and if that's home, that's great. Um, that, I think, is the important part. That's actually what home is for, right? Yeah, I, I would hope, you know, ideally, right? That's yeah, ideally, that's actually scenario. what why you need a home, right? It's right. just somewhere you, which belongs to yourself, and you know when you come back, no matter how stupid Right. You were outside. Yeah. You came back. You can actually say the truth and yeah. the don't being worried to be judged. And yeah. uh, they will say, "Well, even though you did the stupid thing, you are still accepted here. Yeah. You yeah. can still be yourself." So stop playing the role the society wants you to play as a father, mm-hmm. but have human feelings too, and it's okay yeah. to express them, uh, yeah. especially with the people who are closest to you. Yeah. Same, probably similar thing to marriage too, yeah. which I don't <laughs> see a lot actually in marriage. That's why uh, I. I've become interested in observing some of my friends' marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, just taking a look and w- try to start actually, you know, through all the case studies in yeah. my <laughs> micro mind and just say, why this worked out? Why is that one yeah. not working out? And try to find out what's the most healthy way of conducting a marriage. I mm-hmm. kind of feel like it's actually the same as the home. It's just like you need to feel mm-hmm. safe, right? Yeah. Feel yeah. safe, yeah. And, uh, so I, I'll give you one of the most, you know, one of the things I find so devastating about. Um, interpersonal violence or domestic violence. So, you know, I've got colleagues that research this and some like specialize in it clinically and I learned this, actually it's been written about in a, in a couple of different places. Um, if you just look, so let, let's look at heterosexual couples violence because most of the research has been in that population. Um, one of the precursors to men's violence against their female partner is shame. You know, th- that Maybe they're in an argument. Maybe their partner says, you're worthless, you can't make any money, can't pay any bills, like you're a worthless partner, husband, boyfriend, whatever, you're a failure of a man. Like, shame is a precursor to a lot of men's violence, right? Not even just in a relationship, but look at gang guy, like, and so if we don't teach men, boys and men, how to manage shame, or how to sit with and deal with uh, and accept it, and we, o- and, and we only say, you know, you can't feel this. And we're not going to let you feel, you know, um, sad. We're not going to let you feel disappointed, embarrassed. Or, um, you're going to answer that shame if, if I socialize you to solve problems through violence. And then you're putting people at risk. So that's where I think, you know, the, the more we can teach, if you can create places for boys to learn to sit with shame and deal with it and more functional and adaptive ways, I think we will reduce interpersonal violence. Because then I don't need to reestablish masculinity through that means. Um, I, can, I can be honest with how I'm feeling right now. What, you know, when, when you said I'm worthless, that hurt. And I may say I have a lot of you know, shame about, um, I, I wish I made more money. Right? When I think about being a man, it's about making money. Um, and if people don't have space to challenge some of that stuff and learn other ways to deal with it, it's very quick that those, you know, that reaction, a violent, aggressive reaction happens. Before you bring nothing up, up, I never, I didn't even think about there was another way to solve it. But once you bring it up, I think mm-hmm. it's actually reasonable. Mm-hmm. That's been my concern with like traditional anger management. Is that, yeah, there's definitely benefit to it. So let, let's say you know you and I are in an argument and then you get really heated. Mm-hmm. 
and you say, okay, and, and you know, you're like, all right, I got to calm down, so I'm going to take a couple deep breaths. I, I think that's valuable, right? Any, anything that's going to get your nervous system back down to a place where we can actually communicate and prevent maybe you from going too far. Um, so I think there's a place for managing anger. But that's, that happens after it's already out there, right? <laughs> right? Um, and the problem with that is the risk is once it's out there, you know, so, some people don't have a lot of control over it, and then it comes out in a whole bunch of terrible ways. Wouldn't we rather prevent the anger and work downstream? And so when I work with clients about it, I will always, always slow down and say, I get the anger. Like, let's look at the anger as a defensive reaction. Right? Like, it, you know, you were harmed in some way and you felt like this is the way I need to defend myself. But I'd say, what did you feel right before, like the split second before you were angry? Many times, not all, but many times, it's shame. Disappointment, embarrassment, you know, all these things. If you can teach people how to manage and deal with that stuff, then you don't ever have to manage the anger because it's not there. Anger's, anger's got an evolutionary history, right, that's adaptive. Mm -hmm. If my, and the, and the example I usually use, if we were walking down the street and somebody threatens the safety and life of one of my family members, you bet I'm going to do whatever it takes. I will probably lose control, right? But that's been, female do that in the species too, like when we defend our young. So I, I'm not talking about like reactive survival anger and aggression that happens to preserve your life. We get angry in all sorts of situations that uh, it's not a true threat like that. And so if we can give those situations, if we can name those situations for what they are instead of a threat to my life in that moment, right? So if you call me a name at a bar, um, you're not threatening my life, right? Like, that name's not going to do anything. But if I react in a way that I'm defending my life, um, that's not going to help anybody. I'd rather figure out how do I deal with the pain of whatever name you called me in a way that I don't have to default to anger. I don't know if that's a great example or not. But, um, that makes sense to me, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the words, like, the threat you have or, like, just meaningless f people looking for fighting in the bar. You certainly can do better than just... Yeah. go there and just 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 make the thing happen right but yeah. uh but that thing just actually reminds me when you talk about the the shame and yeah. when when men start actually uh use violence towards their female partners for me it's almost like uh why is why is stubbornness or violence easier than just being honest <laughs> like wow. that's the moment you start to feel like humans are really stupid creatures because <laughs> If you just say you're feeling, the other one will be, be be able to feel it, and I don't I don't see any anything this, like, yeah I just think, feel like you can con con you can communicate so sincerely, just like yeah. I, I I'm hurt, yeah, I tried my best. Like right. if you could say that, mm -hmm. that would be a we more powerful line than just mm -hmm. go with violence. But somehow, mm -hmm. so many people just chose to go the other way, which is which way more harmful, do way more damage. But sounds like. Up, it feels like easier right oh yeah it, it does feel easier and then you start to feel like yeah that's really something is missing because clearly the other way is easier <laughs> right, in right. terms of like damage yeah. like whatever right yeah well and I don't know I, that gets back to I, I am not going to blame this on media I'm just going to make the statement though if if we limit models like if, if, if I don't ever see that 
solution to a problem. If I don't see a human being, particularly when I look up to, yeah. solve a problem in that way, where am I going to learn it? Like, you know, like, um, if all I ever see is men solve problems by using violence, and really that still isn't And it's solution. justified. Right, Actually, yes. if you do that, it's justified. Nobody's going to blame you. It's just like, your wife said that? Right. Well, she deserved. Yeah, right, so that everything, kind of that's what your friend is going to say. Right, that kind of attitude. And it's all, you know, and we see it in depicted violence and aggression all over the place. Like, uh, you know, I love me some superhero movies, but, I mean, violence is the solution to... When you have superpowers, yes, problems. because you can basically crush the other guy's <laughs> right. face. That's right. <laughs> um, and I think, about, I think about, like, you know, again, a lot of this comes from doing therapy with, with men, so I, I, I recognize it's kind of a, a special situation. But a lot of them will say, I, like, I never saw my dad do that. You know, I, I never, they don't necessarily see them solve problems in that way of just being honest in the moment and having that conversation. And it's not as they weren't happening. Maybe they're happening after the kids went to bed and, right, who knows. Um, but if they're not seeing it modeled in their own lives and the people they look up to, and they're only seeing problem solved, you know, with aggression and all these other areas, I don't know. It, somebody's like, how, 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 why are we surprised? that this is our response, or that, that this is some people's response to that. Um, Interesting. So yeah. that's where I go back to what you asked earlier about, you know, I've got a son, what do I do? Yeah. Like, can you model a healthy conflict with his mother, right? Like, I would argue that would be helpful to say how, how they just disagree with each other. And it's okay even if things get heat, right? You know, emotions, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think part of the problem too is that they lived together for fifty years. Those kind of thing has to happen, right? By chance, absolutely, right? Absolutely, because um, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying that that we should um, every, everything should be like peaceful and like non-emotional. That's not realistic. Um, I think the opposite occurs. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear people talk about, "Yeah, my parents never fought, but it wasn't a good relationship, right? <laughs> or, or yeah, like cold they still got or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was passive aggressive or that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying that conflict's a bad thing. Um, often it's about repair attempts, and you know, can they see how how a, a couple sorts through these issues, um, and, or yeah, see how people can be show up in that you know vulnerable in the moment instead of reactive in the moment. It's really interesting because it's very easy to see people reacting to humiliations or anything with violence. But actually, you can see a man's true value when how they deal actually this, deal deal with this thing like maturely. Meanwhile, don't lose the dignity. Meanwhile, yeah. make nobody hurt. Yeah, I would. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh -huh. So at least like if nobody's hurt, that's the best. If one body have got got to be hurt, then that should be you because mm -hmm. you hurt my feelings. Right. <laughs> so that that almost seems like a suboptimal solution. Yeah. So probably for kids, you can also when they face those kind of situations, you can also actually start with a smaller problem mm -hmm. and say practice. Expressing your feelings instead of like when you grow up, when you are 40, 50 years old, never tried this before, and now suddenly it's really hard to imagine you can grab in another, another yeah. way, right? Yeah, you got it. Just you're, you don't, you're, just, you're just not used to it. Yeah. It, yeah. And I say, and it's not just so I, and I don't want to put it all on parents either because it, kids spend a lot of time outside of the home, you know, like for a long time. Um, I think this is sometimes feels like the bigger challenge, but. What about all the other adults in that kid's life, you know, from teachers to coaches to, you know, the band directors to whatever, like whatever they're into, those are all like mini opportunities to support, a, you know, multiple ways of showing up. Uh, but if those roles, so if I look up to a coach, and this is a coach who, you know, calls people sissies and like it does that kind of very traditional, 
like that's not gonna you know the outcome is gonna be very different you know than a coach that supports people in different ways so um, do you I think that will hurt the performance of a team that people you know have that question a, a lot of the time but there's been plenty of successful teams that have changed their culture you know really? that, that used to haze you know starters and rookies coming in uh, but they decide yeah we're not going to do that anymore that that's the part that I have a trouble with is this argument like if suddenly we're no longer uh, humiliating people in the locker room that that's going to somehow our, our, our competitive spirit is going to be crushed I, I, I mean I for example that. if you think about the dream you try to in the military definitely this is a no-no yeah almost right yeah you want to bring the aggression and the worst part actually of the masculinity almost out yeah yeah but uh, sports is kind of like in the middle ground well I think back and I, and I do share this example with some of my students I just did the other day for it's kind of weird in high school one of my sports was swimming that was the one I probably spent my most time on for no good reason our swim team our high school swim team we were worse hazers than any other team like we did you know like people um, you know upper class at the time did more horrible things to freshman swim male swimmers than the football team did than the wrestling team did we shared the room with the wrestlers when I look back on that there was nothing that happened in the locker room, like getting wedgies or having your head shoved in the toilet. That didn't, none of us went out and swam faster because of that, right? So like it wasn't, it wasn't like this, hey, this is really inspiring me to be more competitive. My, um, by the time I was senior and captain, we, we weren't gonna, it's like we weren't gonna do stuff that way. We were just as good, if not better, you know, than four years prior to that. So it wasn't the hazing itself. That Where did the thing start even? Oh, who knows? It could have been gone like for decades. Several de yeah, several decades ago or something. Some people just decided to go that way and that thing just passed along. I know. I don't get the hate. Well, so some people have argued that culturally, because we don't have the markers of manhood that like indigenous cultures used to have, where you might go off on a quest or a vision quest or you might go on a hunt, mm -hmm. that there were these very clear ways of kind of marking when I've moved from boyhood into adulthood, that yeah. some of these rituals that these all-male groups, like fraternities, sports teams have done, are, so are like a bastardization. It's a projection of, of these. Yeah, right, okay. right, yeah. I don't know. Um, but I'll, I'll share something interesting just socially from that experience. I remember, so these were guys, some of these guys I swam with when I was like six, right, so in a summer league. So they were several years older than I was, but I knew them. I had known them for 10 years before I, or not 10, I guess, but anyway, before I got into high school. So they were seniors, responsible for doling out the wedgies, you know, lifting people up. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of them pulling me aside before it was going to happen, that swim practice, and he said, I just want to let you know, everybody, everybody, all the freshmen are going to get wedgies. My advice to you is don't say a word. Don't scream. Don't cry. Don't do anything. Just take it, and it will be over quickly. quickly. Uh, and... I got that mentorship, and it was the best advice I ever got, because I got lifted up. That's boring. I wasn't squirming. I wasn't screaming. Yeah. Put me down, and I was never hazed again. There were a couple boys in my class that reacted emotionally, and then were picked on for the next two, three years. Whatever, basically. Right. Yeah. So you know, and I look back, it's sad, right? Like to think about that. And I was grateful for getting that advice, uh, and that's one where, wow, emotional stoicism paid off in that environment. Like it was adaptive in that environment. But did it have to be there in the first place? <laughs> like, um, you know, go back to how, what impact does it have on the team? 
Well, I probably certainly felt a lot more solidarity with the team as a whole than a couple of the guys over the years were getting picked on. I don't see that was how it was helping them. It certainly wasn't helping them swim. And so I think collectively, I don't see the value in those behaviors, even if they're seen as bonding or, or whatever they are. Uh, for If you look at the whole, I don't see that there's any net benefit, even if you may argue, oh, well, we did it because that's the way it's always been or, or, or whatever. So also almost like the expression of aggressions, legal aggressions. Absolutely. For Adelans. Yeah. Which is, yeah, which is sad. I never recall I had those kind of experiences back, but because we come from a different culture, I guess, people yeah. are less violent mm-hmm. from the beginning, and also everybody was so busy studying. All right. <laughs> we don't have time for that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, every day from seven to eight. Sure. Yeah, you just you just do homeworks again yeah. and again and again to study, but yeah. Well, I, so I spent four weeks in um, Luyang, China a couple of years ago with okay. UWL students. And so we were at a middle school and it was, but it was a private boarding school. So these were, you know, these were like really smart kids, but they, they stayed there during the week and slept in, in dorms. And like, you know, they were studying and they'd be up at five something in the morning doing morning exercises, studying yeah. all day. But one thing that we all noticed, and this was very touching, like we noticed how comfortable the boys were, even with physical touch, like, you know, touching each other and laughing. And so they, they were no less happy than an, than an adolescent in the United States. Um, they were probably working harder than, than a lot of our students do. Uh, but they, they seemed to be happy, and, and they didn't seem to be as concerned with that uh, physical affection. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, don't know what it was about it, but we just observed it be different. Because a, a lot of these were te- teacher trained, you know, students trained to become teachers. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't see that in the middle school in lacrosse. Yeah. Girls holding the, hands is very common back in China. Yeah. And then they go shopping, they just hold their hands. Yep. Sometimes they share ice, ice cream. Yep. And they actually did the same thing while I was in my PhD. And some guy actually pulled me over, uh, pulled me aside and just said, are they lesbians? Yeah. See, the first thing they just figured out, I just said, no, they're just friends. This yeah. is actually how friends react to each other. Right. Yeah. Sometimes they try each other's clothes. Yeah. It's totally fine for them. Yeah. So we, and that's an example in kind of U.S. masculinity that, that we have, we often over-sexualize or hyper-sexualize things. Or individualism, I would say. That may be Because in China, I don't know if, how hard it is for you to imagine, like, when I was a kid, we have those kind of public restrooms and basically people just face each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, we don't have, like, a isolated room with right. gates or anything. You just see each other all the time. Yeah. So a lot of things you need to share. Because you have to, right? Simply, right? right? Yeah. And uh, now, nowadays, people are getting, you know, more individualized. They have their own space. They learn to actually respect each other's space and everything. Mm-hmm. But still, those kind of culture kind of carries through. Yeah. And also, your brothers, yeah, they touch you, no problem. Your father touching you, no problem. Mm-hmm. So that's kind mm-hmm. of like how our culture works. Yeah. So and uh, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with it. And uh, people, I think people help each other mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. once they have those kind of physical. How to say you, you don't you don't do that thing with random people of course right 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 it's almost like we're brothers with different family names that's kind of how we put it gotcha it's like uh, yeah. if you really want to make a brother you can make a brother mm-hmm. with any random guy mm-hmm. you know just like yeah I think you know I like talking with you yeah and we're kind of like brothers now and and it's actually sometimes a big commitment just mm-hmm. like if you die today mm-hmm. I'm gonna take care of your family Gotcha. You know, that's as big as that compared to you know what I see here. I found wow, that's actually very very different. You know, mm-hmm. people when people say they are friends with you, yeah, that means a totally different thing. Okay. <laughs> because it's a pretty serious commitment if yeah. you say that. So that that's a beautiful example of cross cultural differences in 
gendered friendships, right? Like, yeah. So, so to say that it's masculine to, you know, only go out and just talk surface level sports and maybe just get drunk together and, and but not know that this human being is suffering, you know, like right next to me. Um, again, there's nothing inherently masculine about that, right? You know. Yeah, for it, me, it's I, cultured. Yeah, for me, I see everything I see from there. The first time I came here, I'm not familiar with the culture. I just see stupidity. I'm just going to yeah. be fair. Yeah. Like, why do you want to get wasted? very often and you work hard to earn a lot of like your students right you mm-hmm. earn you, you work hard to earn some money and you spend nothing on alcohol which mm-hmm. is like strange to me mm-hmm. while you have students have that de- debts to pay yeah and you think that's cool yeah <laughs> that's that's the first time i saw that i just like wow this doesn't make sense to me at all yeah well but, maybe i can shed a little light on some of it um and this is the joke i tell when people say oh no, you know men don't say they love each other to each other i said yeah they do go to the bar at 2 a.m. Yeah. You'll see plenty of guys with their arms around each other saying, I love you. And, and so I think for, you know, so for not giving men opportunities to do that, right, with each other and, you know, and then not be judged and weird and get homophobic and all that kind of stuff, it's like, well, as soon as their inhibitions are impaired a little, you know, let down a little bit, now they've got some flexibility and freedom to do it. So it's almost like you're creating a social situation for you to express some okay. feelings yeah so that's the thing yeah yeah because i, I got people talked with me and, and suspect that's actually the thing yeah i wow. think so now then the, the the devastating part is if you continue that disinhibition that's also then when we see a lot of those other behaviors you know poor choices sexual aggression drunk driving like stuff where people are, are harming self and others because i mean from the beginning that that is not a too healthy situation to begin with right, right. so yeah right. interesting what about uh i found another thing interesting here that is i don't know how you feel about this it's just it's hard to share a deep it's almost like people respect your boundary mm-hmm. so i don't want to know anything personal you know if you say something personal people are going to say hey i'm going to back off don't yeah. tell me that yeah. things like that in, in our culture it's actually very that's almost like a sign like I'm sharing this with you, so mm-hmm. from now on we can share everything mm-hmm. about information. So mm-hmm. is that also like a masculinity thing? In my in my experience, I think that's the challenge to vulnerability, right? So it's like, um, and and yet I want to be clear too, because I, I I don't think there are a lot of boys and men walking around out there without feelings, right? <laughs> uh, I don't believe it to be true at all. Um, but when you in interviews, you know, when they when, on the research on male friendships you'll often hear them. So men get caught up in um, these concepts in social psych like called uh, false consensus or pluralistic ignorance. So this idea, and, and they just, they're similar, but they operate in different directions. So it might be, I think I'm in the minority when in fact I'm in the majority. So if I, let's, yeah, I'm a group of six guys and maybe, maybe I am hurting in some way. Let's just say like, I really want to tell these guys, let's say I had a breakup. And I just need them to listen to me and say, wow, that really sucks. But they're all, they're all saying, oh, you know, go look up with somebody else or just deal with it be better. Um, there might be four other guys in that circle who are thinking the exact same thing as me. Boy, I really wish I could just say this and be supported. But nobody, no other guys are thinking that. And so I, I have to say what I think everybody else is thinking and saying. Interesting. And so yeah. a lot of guys collude together in not connecting more deeply because they're afraid that nobody else feels that way 
I will make I, your last of mine. Yeah. And they, when in fact they might be, I'll, so I'll give you, here's my self-disclosure, here's a story I tell a lot about that. When I, so in the U.S., oftentimes with bachelor parties, kind of the, the norm, historical norm was you go out to a strip club, right, and see, you know, exotic dancing or something. I did not want to do that. So, so that was, I was, my, that was something that was not part of my family <laughs> upbringing. <laughs> and I actually remember very explicitly my father would, my father was in sales for a time, and he, you know, when out on a, if he was out on a trip with other salesmen, it'd be Friday, they'd be done, and they'd be like, hey, let's go to the strip club. And my dad wouldn't do it. Like, that was just not something that, it was not a pro regional idea. Um, and I remember him saying that. So it was in the back of my head. So when we were planning my bachelor party, I thought, all right, how can I situate this so I can avoid going to a strip club? So I said, oh, we'll do a bachelor party on a houseboat. Because <laughs> I know nothing about houseboats. <laughs> other than if we're on water, how can we go to a strip club? And so, uh, again, showing I know nothing about houseboats, you have to dock a houseboat at night. <laughs> so you can't be on the river. So we were on the <laughs> Illinois River. These were like 13, 14 friends of mine from high school and college all together in this big boat. And a couple of guys were like, let's go to the strip club. And I was like, no, I don't want to. And they're like, you don't have a choice. And I was like, but isn't this my bachelor party? Uh, they're like, no, this is what we do. And so there's all this person. So of course we all go to the strip club. Uh, and me and like one other person, you know, kind of hung off on the side, like kind of, you know, not caring too much. Um, you know, having beers, talking to each other, uh, but trying to kind of minimize. Uh, but I had a fun time overall, went home. A couple years later, another person's bachelor party. Let's go to the strip club. And it's like, I don't really want to go. And other people are like, I don't, I don't know if I want to go either, but uh, we'll just go anyway. And they say, you know, don't ruin the fun. So now we're at another one, but there are more people at my table than before uh, that didn't want to go either. But we're, so then, you know, this is a show I'm a slow learner. So now, so now third bachelor party. I think we're in Vegas at the time. Let's go to the strip club. And a bunch of us are like, no, not interested. Now, at this point, what has changed is we had our first daughter, and I was in graduate school doing clinical work, and I had had some clients that were dancers. Uh, and I was like, you know what, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to support this. This is just not who I am. I don't want to, not, like, girls to, or girl, daughter to grow up in a world this is an occupation for. And a lot of them said, me neither. So of that group of 14, two of them got an Uber and went anyway, and then they meet up with us later. So this whole time, this is like about the same group of friends, all three years, or all three parties, most of the guys didn't really want to go. But we all just like, oh yeah, that's what you do. Or I don't want to be the one person who spoils the fun and stays home. And yet we were all colluding in silence. <laughs> for several years until we all discovered right and like I look back on it you know kind of say look I'm not it's not I'm not like the hero here right it took me several times to actually just speak up uh, more honestly about it uh, but just to also highlight that social pressure guys often sometimes often feel and then uh, and, and they don't challenge they don't stand up they don't challenge a norm even though it's not a real norm is this mythical perceived norm that everybody feels this way and yet they don't. So that's the part I think about masculinity that I find that I get, I understand it, I've lived it, but I also think is one of the most challenging components is that social norming piece and, and saying like what is it that men do here and if I violate that, what's it gonna cost me? It still sounds like a, a byproduct of the ritual we inherit from uh, we inherited from the the tribe. 
yeah. do total nerd Absolutely. thing. Just like, yeah, not, like it or not, this is almost like without this, you would, you would never be a man. Right. 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 But for now, like in this modern society with all the freedom, is it really necessary to carve your arm right. or just you <laughs> right. know, chop off one of the finger, <laughs> put your put your blood into something? I, right. I would say if you do that, that would be impressive. Yeah. yeah. Compared to just getting drunk. Right. Like I, I can't I can't say enough about my hearing students just say, hey, I'm totally prepared to get wasted on, on my mm -hmm. 21st birthday, 21st birthday. It's just like, why? Mm -hmm. You're not this kind of person, mm -hmm. but I do it either way. So yeah. yeah, that's strange. Going back to the, the, the guy who actually actually break up with uh, his girlfriend oh, yeah. on that day, right? Maybe if you bring it up and everybody's okay with that, it seems like, oh, maybe I'm the one which is not competent. Right. Right. right, but right. It turns out actually everybody's just as vulnerable, as weak as you, and sometimes it's actually sharing those kind of feelings will actually be be good for the whole group, not just for yourself. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's it's really hard to tough out to act that you tough out constantly. And and I think it maybe here is part of the link. So and this is like if we're ex if if we're gendering things at the extreme. And, it, and so part of, part of the hallmark of what people are calling toxic masculinity, you know, or I call it like restrictive masculinity or reactive masculinity, um, if we're saying, if, if a boy hears his entire life, you know, emotions are girly, you're a sissy, you're a pussy, whatever, right? Like if, if they're hearing that over, 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 over again, like this anti-femininity over and over and over again, no wonder they're going to sit back and say, oh, maybe I shouldn't share this because if I do, I will be seen as a girl, a woman, whatever, and that's the worst thing that I could be seen as. So if we're sending that messages, so no wonder guys are sitting there being like, uh, I'm not gonna speak up, I'm not, I'm not gonna test this because the threat feels so great of social, you know, being outcast or whatever. People are gonna make fun of me and everything, but if you think yeah. about it, that is kind of something which happened back when they have a lot of manufacturer jobs and people are uneducated. Yeah. That's more something you're going to probably need to really think about. But for nowadays, people are so educated. People mm -hmm. have seen so much. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows how to respect each other. Actually, mm -hmm. probably stopping nothing won't be a bad thing. Because they oh. make you uncomfortable, right? Right. So, and, and often, boys and men focus on the cost, but not the benefits. And so the default is, what's this going to cost yeah, me yeah, yeah. in the short term, or maybe long term? Uh, but we're not also pausing to say, well, okay, but what are the benefits? And if I run this algorithm through, <laughs> like, yeah, you know what? Right now they might give me some shit and they might call me some names, but maybe it will start a conversation and maybe this friendship will grow and I'll have somebody I can really You set trust. a frame how you want to right. be with other people, right? Sometimes I think about this too, because some people say I'm blunt. Mm -hmm. I would say, yeah, great. Mm -hmm. Now you know I'm blunt. Mm -hmm. From now on until the end of day, mm -hmm. think about how you speak to me. Ah. Uh -huh. Right, so actually, I I deal with the hard feelings for one time. Now I'm set, all set for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's yeah. same thing with you. Like if you just stand up and say, "Hey, I don't want to go to the strip club," from mm -hmm. now on, you will be exempt from all the strip club yeah. invitation from the rest of your life. For me, I think about that. It's just like there's no oh, right. better benefits, <laughs> right. whatever cost. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. gonna do it. Yeah, <laughs> because I'm good for the rest of my life. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned this because this is something I've been struggling with this last summer. I've been kind of coming to terms with this idea, and part of it's cultural here. We call it we call it Midwest nice. And I, don't, I don't know if you've thought much about that. Well, but I have California nice, Alabama nice, and then uh, Midwest okay. nice. Right. So I know three different nices. All right. <laughs> so and and you know some people say well this is an extreme form of passive aggressive, or you know it, it shows up as passive aggressive in the extreme. Um, but I've been trying to think about the difference between nice and kind, and so. 
and, and I think this actually goes back, we'll use the strip club example. In that moment, I think, or I thought, I was being nice by not rocking the boat, you know, not wanting to ruin your fun, right? So I'm going to be nice, and I'm going to, I'm going to take the, you know, the hit here. I'm going to be nice and let you have your fun, right? To me, that registered as a nice thing to do in that moment. Um, the problem with nice is that in that situation, I gave up a part of myself, yeah. right? And you if I can, the boundary. and if I continue to do that, it's going to it's going to cost me. I'm going to build up. I might build up resentment to those friends. I might build up resentment to myself for not, you know, the kind thing to do in that moment would have been. And it's I think for me when I heard blunt, that's why I'm thinking of kindness. Like it would have been kind. It, maybe it would have hurt in that moment, and they would be like, no, but I really wanted to hang out tonight. I really want to spend time with you this way, uh, and I'm frustrated. But ultimately, that would have been the kind thing to do because, in the long run, that would have prevented uh, me from feeling resentful, and then other people. That's exactly yeah. Because every time you give people a reaction, they will actually go into shape their behaviors towards your reaction. Mm -hmm. If you are nice this time, they're going to expect you to be nice next time. Yep. Then next time, when they whenever they make that decision, just say, "Don't ask Ryan because he's okay with everything." Yeah, that is a oh, you just gave the perfect right. And a lot of people don't realize that because, for me, just personal opinion, I think saying the truth is always the best way to solve it. Because, mm -hmm. number one, if you say the wrong thing one time, mm -hmm. it's not just that one time. Mm -hmm. You start to pay interest of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, okay. Right, it's not like yeah. okay, it's just one harm. No, yeah. next time ten percent. Next time ten percent. Yeah. I constantly reflect. You know, the first time we went out, mm -hmm. I said that. Mm -hmm. I still remember that thing, and you guys heard my feelings. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is like sometimes that. you, you have those kind of resentfulness simply because you didn't communicate to other people, mm -hmm. and you have no idea. Maybe they will respect that. Right. You actually give other people. You didn't give other people an opportunity to accommodate to your needs. Yeah. But then automatically you think they're bad people because they don't care about my feelings. Yeah. But you. How am I supposed to carry your feelings if you say, I want to go too, or I'm okay with it? I just say, wow, I just gave all right opportunity. He has never been there before. I'm doing a good mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Compared to, oh, I'm actually hurting him simply because he doesn't want to go. Right. Communicate clearly will actually solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Other people will actually, you will actually start to see other people are actually way more friendly than, mm -hmm. than you think. They are mm -hmm. going to actually care about your feelings mm -hmm. as long as you say it, though. Right. right? Oh, I love it. <laughs> but then, if you think about this thing, one thing I observe actually is in the marriage. Yeah. It's just so many times you see people just, you know, uh, I came home late, but I'm a good wife. I'm not going to say a thing. Uh, One yes. time, twice. Yeah. Third times I figured, wow, you're so late. And suddenly I came home and my wife gave me a cold meal. Mm -hmm. How do you know? Mm -hmm. uh, she did it on purpose simply because I hate you. So I, want, I will find all these kind of small <laughs> things to, to hurt you yeah, yeah. without breaking the thing, right? And yeah. then the guy just say, well, I'm a good husband. I shouldn't complain anything. Right. But then I'm, I'll come home more late. You know, yeah, so yeah. you have those kind of things building up until one day you start to see like, okay, why is my meal cold? You finally ask, mm -hmm. and then the moment that they, one of them just smashed the dish, you know, I I I've been suffering for a long time, mm -hmm. and then you just I don't know where this come from. <laughs> like, why don't you tell me? Yeah, right. So after ten years, until that moment, you start to feel like there's no way you can repair this relationship. Yeah, and it's all about the interest you keep paying, which is I would like to use like a, it's a compound interest. I love that model. Right, you pay that. Exponential growth, yeah. so done. So you've also done this very great job of talking about, um, you know, the, they call it the violence pyramid. You know, so when we talk about violence broadly, but we'll talk about men's violence specifically, um, at the base of the pyramid are all the, it, it's all the little things that 
people get away with that go unchallenged. So they might they might make a racist joke, they might make a sexist joke, they might do any of these number of things. And it's just like you said, if I let you pa- if I let it pass, if I say, oh well, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings, I'm going to laugh at your joke, your sexist joke, right? There, you know, these guys in this case are finding all these situations where they're not getting challenged, and then they start to increase push the boundary, yeah. push the boundaries, and now they're in a state where they're perpetrating violence against another you know, human being. Um, but it all rests on that bed of kind of colluding in silence and not being honest and not being forthright about stuff. And so I think a lot of men's behavior, I think that that's how we sometimes see, see those extremes is because they've been testing the boundaries, you know, and they haven't been challenged. Um, and then meanwhile, guys are, you know, short, shorting themselves by participating, but then saying I'm a nice guy, like I wouldn't do that. You know, like I wouldn't hit another woman. Like, but I'm laughing at that guy's jokes, or I'm supporting him in some other way. So yeah. I guess a a real, let me say a real man, but a real human. <laughs> you know, if you want to take responsibility, if you want to stand up, if you want to show like you know, assertiveness, that's an opportunity to do it. Yeah, when people know your boundary, they will actually come to that boundary and mm-hmm. know, okay, don't piss him off on this. Mm-hmm. But everything else is okay. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like it created a better environment for you. It also created a better environment for other people too, which is because they know totally you're predictable. Mm-hmm. So as long as I stay away from that, I'm fine. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. actually I, I kind of feel like for especially for between males, it's like we're constantly pushing boundaries. Yeah. We're testing. And try to see like where we should go, and that's how we establish almost every relationship. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to be taken advantage of, and you mm-hmm. want this relationship to be healthy, not one-sided probably you, you just need to take that step. Yeah. And that's actually part of masculinity too. That's called brave. For me, that's called braveness. Yep. Yeah. And what comes with braveness is vulnerability. Like, so that's the part. So sometimes people think about courage and braveness is only only the the part that we see on the surface, like the, the outcome of the bravery. Yeah. But to even put yourself in a position, <laughs> like to do that brave thing, whatever that might be, whether it's some physical feat or an emotional one, that requires putting yourself in a vulnerable position. Um, those things go hand in hand, but we often, I think, as, as males particularly, will focus on the brave part without paying attention to the vulnerability that had to occur to be brave in the first place. And I think there, and there's multiple ways to, to be brave. Um, That's interesting, yeah. because I would just try to associate this. I just finished a cartoon, and basically, what makes you a true warrior is yeah. not how good you are good at how good you are at fighting, but what you fight for. Ah, yeah. You need something to fight for. You need something like your bravery should be based on something yeah. you're fighting for. Otherwise, it's just not brute. No, brave. <laughs> no, that's no. just reckless. Right? right there, you go. Yeah, that's there's a big difference. I, and I think a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but at the extreme ends, a lot of that masculine bravery is recklessness. It's not. Yeah, it's not supported or backed up by some of these other, you know, I guess, more noble approaches to things. Interesting. Well, we hit the mark of. Every time I talk with you, I feel like, yeah, every time we, we go easily on 100 minutes, so I, I would call it for today. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. And Otherwise, we, I'll go on forever. We can talk later, so. yeah, on something else. But yeah. thank you for joining us today. Oh, uh, so I, I love that you do this, and I've been listening to other people's and watching. It, it's such a, it's awesome. Like, great, it, It's thanks. a great thing for the community, and thanks for having me.